Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open our Bibles to the 12th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 12, our verses 13 through 21 of our text. Jesus was traveling south from Galilee to the region of Judea. And here in our text today, he continues to perform miracles and astound the masses with his teaching. This particular episode occurs on the heels of a lunch invitation that he accepted from an unnamed Pharisee. There at that luncheon, Jesus sharply rebuked religious hypocrisy. Well, the Pharisees did not miss the fact that he was aiming that criticism at them. And so from that point on, they were increasingly hostile towards Jesus and his message and began to plot his demise. Jesus, of course, knew their hearts. Jesus used that occasion to warn his followers that they too would one day face persecution. He told them not to worry because the Holy Spirit would not abandon them in their time of testing. Beginning here in verse 13, the Lord turns his attention to a different sort of danger. It's a second warning. Not for the possible future imprisonment or death at the hands of the enemies that some of them would face, but for the present existential danger of loving money. The title of our message this morning is Money, a Cautionary Tale. Let's read Luke chapter 12, verse 13 and following. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. And he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? Then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? And then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. The first thing we see right away in verse 13 is a misplaced demand. Someone in the crowd came to Jesus and said, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Jesus was famous for preaching with authority. He was a rabbi and a teacher, so they addressed him appropriately. And so it seems natural that a man who was known for his wisdom and his authoritative teaching would be the one that would be asked to settle a dispute that arose between two siblings. But this particular dispute was the stickiest sort that was over property. It was an inheritance dispute. And getting involved in a property dispute is sort of like wrestling a pig. You both get covered in mud and the pig likes it. (laughs) But Jesus, of course, being omniscient, was certainly qualified to settle any sort of dispute. He, after all, is the judge of the living and the dead. He would have been perfect and just in his rendering. So why does he 
deflect. Why, why does he say, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? If anyone was qualified to be a judge, it was he. Well, I think it's because if he had done so, if he said, okay, I'll settle the dispute, the people would have lined up around the block to have him settle their petty financial disputes. He didn't want to lose focus of his real mission. And he said he came to seek and to save the lost. He had set his face towards the cross and he would not be distracted to the right or to the left. And friends, I believe there is a danger today in our church and in the church writ large that we will lose our focus on the gospel and on the Great Commission and become distracted by the political and social issues of the day, which are generally symptomatic of the real issue, which is that people are lost. And so Jesus resisted that temptation as we must. So instead of setting up an outdoor courtroom and say, come one, come all, Jesus instead used the occasion to give a timely warning. Look at verse 15. Then he said to them, beware. The same thing he said earlier about the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Now he says, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. Now, how would you define greed? Well, greed is a selfish desire for more than is necessary or sufficient. A selfish desire for more than is necessary or sufficient. Jesus seems to indicate it can take on many forms. He said, beware of every type of greed. But when we think of greed, we generally think about greed for money. It is the most obvious type of greed. But we must remember that money is a morally neutral thing. It's neither good nor evil. It's just a thing. It can be used to buy medicine for a sick child. It can be used to buy a weapon to commit a murder. It's neutral. But the Bible is filled with warnings about the use of money, the attitude toward money, specifically the danger of the love of money. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. An untoward desire for wealth. The Apostle Paul declared that riches are deceitful. Now, why would he say riches are deceitful? Well, things are deceitful when they make promises they don't have the ability to keep. And so people who have a lot of wealth may think things like, if I had enough money, I would be happy, or I'd always be healthy, or I would be more secure. And yet all of us know people that have more money than they could ever spend in two lifetimes who are miserable and sick and anxious. And this is the point that Jesus is making he says that even when a man has an abundance, his life does not consist of his possessions. Life, in other words, is more than things that money can buy. Saw a bumper sticker that said, he who dies with the most toys wins. We could interpret this verse to say, he who dies with the most toys is a fool. If he's not rich towards God. In fact, Probably the clearest teaching about money in the Bible is you cannot love God and money. Those things are mutually exclusive. You will either love one or hate the other, vice versa. And so we're told in several places, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, but rather we are to lay up treasure in heaven. That is to invest your life, your time, your money in kingdom things. And to illustrate his warning about money, Jesus tells a stunning story. Verse 16. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? 
And he said, here's what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Now he begins the story by getting the attention of the audience. Jesus is a master teacher. It's a simple declarative sentence. He likely knows that many in that audience are farmers or make their living in agriculture. And so he says, the land of a rich man was highly productive. Now that tells us two things, that this man had a year in which he had a bumper crop and this was not the first time because he was a rich farmer. And so he was already rich and the rich got richer with yet another bumper crop. Times were good for this farmer. Now, I want to stop right here and say there is nothing wrong with turning a profit. God is not anti-capitalism. God blesses man with minds for business and he blesses men and women with physical health. They should use those things productively. God told our first parents, Adam and Eve, to go forth and multiply. And the sin of the rich farmer was not productivity. Heavens no. The sin of this man was idolatry. The very first of the Ten Commandments is a prohibition against having anything ahead of God. It doesn't have to be a statue. It can just as easily be a bank balance. I think the key to deciphering this man's idolatrous heart is his use of personal pronouns. Take note how many times he refers to himself and his possessions, I, my, mine. I counted over ten as I was reading just now. Not once does he recognize the fact, seemingly, that God made the land that he farmed, that God made it fertile, that God watered it with his rain so that the crops could grow, and he withheld pestilence that could have destroyed it at any moment. R rather than thanking God, he congratulated himself and awarded himself a plaque that read Farmer of the Year. Well, as often can happen, Abundance, in this case a bumper crop, created a problem. Now if you're a farmer that's a problem you'd like to have. But it was a problem. The problem was I don't have any place to put all of this crop. Incidentally, take a note in your margin that that is generally what happens as we accumulate things. Rather than make our life simpler and easier, it complicates our lives. His barns were not large enough to hold the produce and now there could be a number of solutions to that problem. Can you think of some? I just wrote down a couple. One, he could share with those who had less. There certainly must have been farmers who didn't have a good crop that year. And what if he sold the crop and built a school for farming? If he was such a great farmer, why didn't he share that knowledge with the others? But his solution was, here's what I'll do. I'll tear down my old barns and I'll build bigger barns and I'll store my grain and my possessions and I'll retire. Now again, I don't believe we should take this as a rebuke or prohibition against productivity or even expansion or even retirement. It's a good thing when your business prospers through God's blessings because you can create jobs and you can give other people in the community an opportunity to better their situation. The problem with this man is that his plan was to take the Lord's blessing, hoard them, and use them exclusively on his personal pleasure and gratification. And that's why Jesus calls him a fool. His motivation was not, how can I help my fellow man? 
How can I help God's people? How can I invest this wealth in kingdom work? He was interested in personal ease and comfort. And so he says it out loud. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put up my feet and I'm going to settle in for a long, unproductive retirement. But not only is this man foolish, but Jesus indicates so is everyone who has the same attitude. Remember what he said in warning them about the Pharisees? Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Don't let any of their eight attitudes slip in into your life because before you know it, it's spread and it's permeated your life and that's who you will become. In a similar way, he's saying don't let greed have a foothold in your life because if you're not careful, it'll destroy you. So he says instead, you must be rich towards God, which is the question we need to answer. What does it mean to be rich towards God. This is a penetrating application. And I've thought long and hard this week of what does it mean to be rich towards God. I've turned this verse over and over in my head and I keep getting this image of an old television show that I watched as a kid, old black and white, in which Burgess Meredith, the actor, played a character who was a bank teller who loved to read. He often gave the wrong change to his customers and was scolded by his boss because he had one eye on a novel and the other eye on his cash register. And, and during his lunch hour, he would often go into the bank vault and close it so that he could have a few moments of peace and quiet to eat his lunch and to read his favorite book. All he wanted in life was to be left alone to read. And while one day he was having his lunch in the bank vault, there was an apocalypse. A nuclear war broke out and everyone on planet earth died except Burgess Meredith because he was protected in the bank vault. And he walked out, began to shuffle around, he realized what had happened and he was in despair, suicidal. But as he was shuffling down the street he noticed a sign that said public library. The door was ajar and he went in and all of the books were pristine. They had not been destroyed by the bombs. And he began to smile because he realized his wildest dreams had come true. He had all the time in the world, no one to bother him, and all the books in the world. And just as, as he was rejoicing in his good fortune, he stumbled and his glasses fell to the ground and broke. And he was legally blind without them. And here he was in the presence of untold riches of literature and unable to enjoy them. That's the picture of this man. He had everything he thought his heart desired to fulfill his life, to make him happy. But rather than taking away the things, God took away his life. Do you remember what Jesus said last week to his disciples? Don't fear the one that can kill the body. Fear the one who can kill the body. Cast your soul into hell. Here is that parable again. God took his life. God can do that. It's incredibly vivid application. Friends, our lives are nothing more or less than a stewardship. Our time, our talent, and our treasures are on loan from the Lord, and one day He will call us to account for how we've spent them. One day every one of us will stand before the Lord and give an account of our lives. I am pleading with us all today to make sure that when we stand before the Lord that we will have been rich towards Him. Let me give you just a few ways to be rich towards God. One, be, be rich in worship. 
Give Him your best in worship. Be excited and enthusiastic about gathering with God's people. I'm not talking about jumping up and down and putting on a show and drawing attention to yourself. I'm talking about when it's time to gather in the Lord's house with the Lord's people. Look forward to it. And be here. Be enthusiastic in your study of God's Word. Be rich in service to one another. Jesus says when we have ministered to the least of our brothers and sisters, we've done it as unto the Lord. One of the great honors of my life was preaching the funeral message of our former senior pastor, Leroy Patterson. I was his intern, later his assistant before his sudden death, and he often told me on our hospital visits that we are never to be too busy to serve God's people. Now, I try to remember that, though I, I certainly fall short. But Jesus taught, when we serve the least, we're serving Him. Don't measure out your service then in small doses. Can you imagine if Jesus were here bodily and we had the opportunity to minister Him in some way and we did the least we could do? No, don't measure out your service to one another in small doses. Lavish your service on those who need your help. Be rich in service, but also be rich in time. Don't you find out the older you get that the things you value change? When you're a young person, you have your whole life ahead of you, you think, you think that your greatest asset is your house. When you're a teenager, you may think it's a car. But as you get older, you realize your greatest asset is your time because it's finite and fleeting. This is true in our relationship to God. Spend time with God in prayer and Bible study and memorization. The Apostle Paul near the end of his life seemed to recognize this and said what he wanted most was intimacy with Christ, to know Him, to fellowship with Him, not to get from Him the things he wanted or needed, but just to spend time with Him in His presence was the greatest treasure that he could imagine. And then fourthly, be rich in investing your finances in kingdom work. Now, some of you have noticed that I don't make a habit of preaching about tithing. Some of you have asked me why. So, rather than going around to each of you individually, we'll do it here, okay? <laughs> uh, I believe in grace giving. I believe we're in the New Testament and we are under covenant of grace but I also believe that grace will be more generous than law. I practice tithing, my wife and I do. I teach my children to practice tithing, but we view tithing like we view training wheels on our children's bicycle. It helps them to get up and moving and have confidence, but it was never intended to be an end to itself. Tithing for us is a way to train ourselves to avoid the temptation of greed. And I'm going to do something this morning I, I struggle whether I should or not. I'm going to tell you some of the rules, if you want to call them that. I choose to call them boundaries or aids that my family uses to help us avoid the sin of greed. I tell you this not because I don't struggle with greed, but because I do. I need help. And so I put some safeguards in my life to help me avoid this sin. One of the men in ministry that I most admire is a guy by the name of John Piper. 
And the reason that I admire him so much is that he has sold literally millions of books all over the world and he's never taken one penny of royalties. He gives it all back to his local church. He lives on a very reasonable salary and he lives very frugally, though he could be fabulously wealthy. And someone asked him at a conference one time, why don't you take royalties? He says, because here's the way I am. If I buy a pack of juicy fruit gum, I chew it all in 10 minutes. The last thing I need is a lot of money. And so to discipline himself, he puts these boundaries, these bumpers in his life. And so when Melissa and I got married 16 years ago, we did the same. And here's the first one. We tithe off the gross of whatever the Lord puts into our possession, not just salary, but any other gifts or windfalls through the year. We tithe, give 10% of that. But we, we try to see that as a floor and not a ceiling. That is a beginning place and not an ending place. And then beyond the tithe, we give regular gifts. And in our context, that's through our global impact offering and through our building program, but also to ministries and organizations that we believe in. The other thing is that we try to be on the lookout for people in need. I say this to our staff in, in the area of service, set your default setting to yes rather than no. Be ready to give. Now, all those things sound great, but before you're able to tithe, before you're able to be generous, before you're able to help people in need, you have to have some other measures in place in your family. And I want to talk about those. We determined early on that we were going to use credit wisely. We had friends who had gotten themselves in a lot of trouble by the overexposure to debt. And so we have one credit card and we use it for groceries and gasoline and clothing and we pay it off every month and use the little cash back on that for things we splurge on. We've determined not to become enslaved to any man through debt. And so that means we have to save regularly. There's no prohibition in the Bible against reasonable reserves. In fact, in the Old Testament, we are told to consider the ant who puts away when times are good so that he'll have something to eat in the lean times. One of the reasons so many Christians are handcuffed financially and unable to be generous when they see a need is that they have spent everything they've had and they have nothing extra to give. But I think the most important safeguard that we've placed in our lives and to our family against greed is intentional thankfulness. Whether it's a bag of tomatoes someone leaves on the front door or whether it's an honorarium from a conference in which I speak, we are intentional in the presence of our children to thank God for it. To let them know every good and perfect gift comes from the Lord. That's this man's greatest failing. It wasn't that the Lord blessed him, is that he did not recognize from whence the blessings came. James said, every good and perfect gift cometh down from the Father of lights. And friends, I don't say any of that to say, look at us, that we're perfect. We are far from it. I'm saying, I am so sinful and prone to greed. I must do these things in my life. Well, as we think about those very basic and elementary and common sense principles, 
why shouldn't we apply those to the work of the church? After all, the church is just the collection of individual Christians, isn't it? And so we've attempted to do that. You, you remember a few weeks ago when we presented the master plan, the vision plan to you, which included some new buildings, included some new staff. We determined from the very beginning in that vision committee to implement these very basic and sound principles. Number one, to give a tithe. And so we've said 10% of anything that comes into our vision fund that we're going to use to build buildings around here, 10% of it is going to go outside of the church to help others build buildings and to send missionaries. And we've committed to that. The other principle is not to become enslaved to debt. We're not saying debt is sinful in and of itself. We're going to be wise. We're only going to go in debt for those things that appreciate in value. And we've said we have to accumulate 50% for a down payment, half of it up front, before we build any building or, or incur any debt. And we've set a maximum of twice our annual budget. By the way, it's a good principle for your home. Don't incur debt for your home more than twice your annual budget. And, and we've committed to do that here. Now, we know that things happen that, that we can't foresee, but those are just common sense measures that we take to avoid the sin of greed. Because just as you can express greed in your personal finances, we can express greed in our church finances. And we really prayed long and hard about that, that that, that was not the case. And you, and you might remember that our first founding principle of the vision team is soli deo gloria, which means what? For the glory of God alone. That is, in all of these projects and all of these dreams we have for the future, none of them will be undertaken unless we can answer in the affirmative that we're doing it for God's glory. Friends, churches build buildings for all sorts of reasons. Sometimes the pastor wants to build a building as a monument to his personal ego. I pray that will never happen here. Sometimes we build buildings because we want to impress the neighborhood. Sometimes we build buildings on speculation. Well, if we build a building, more people will, will come. We've determined to do none of those things. We will build for need, and we will build if we can use that building for the Lord's glory and not anyone's personal gratification. And so pray that, that we'll be able to do that. I made a decision 25 years ago when I was called to pastor. That decision was that I would not spend my life shaming people or badgering people or manipulating people to give their money to support the ministries of the church. Instead, I determined to help all of us, including myself, from the scriptures catch a little glimpse of the glory of God, to value Him supremely. And friends, I am convinced that when all of us catch a glimpse of God's glory, when we value Him above everything else in the world, we won't have to manipulate you to give to His work. You'll do it out of gratitude, you'll do it with excitement and with joy. So, so what is the warning here in this parable? This man is set before us as a warning 
an example of those who bought into the deceitfulness of riches. He believed three primary lies that riches and wealth tell. The first lie that riches tell is that they are supremely valuable. That there's nothing to be valued more than riches. Because that's what we're told. That's what, uh, if you watch a golf tournament this afternoon, you'll be inundated with advertisements about those who manage your money that tell you if you give your money to us and let us manage it, you'll have no problems the rest of your life. You'll, you'll spend the next 30 years on a sailboat carefree. Don't you believe it? Money possessions are not supreme. By the way, even if they were right, even if they got you 12% for the rest of your life, there's no guarantee you'll be happy. There's no guarantee your life will be free from anxiety. There's no guarantee you'll live to see a day to enjoy it. God is supremely valuable. He will not tolerate anything, including your possessions, that vies for the affections that belong only to him. The second lie this man bought into is that possessions are eternal in duration. His strategy was tear down the barns, fill them up, kick back your feet. You've got enough to last many years. The problem was he didn't have many years. The Bible called him a fool and says, tonight your life will be required of you. None of us know how long we have, and so it's a fool's errand to say we'll do this or that. James said you can make plans, but always do them with the idea if the Lord wills. And so if God is supremely valuable, and the things of God are supremely valuable, and the things of this world don't last, they don't. That's why the Bible says don't lay up your treasures here, because they depreciate. If you buy clothing, moths will destroy it eventually. If you invest in precious metals, they'll eventually rust. Peter says they'll one day melt with fervent heat. No matter what you do, it can be stolen from you. So why not place your treasure in heaven? Why not invest in the kingdom? Here's the third and final lie that this man believed. He believed that possessions were the best insurance against unforeseen circumstances. If I have enough money, it doesn't matter what happens, I'll survive it. Friends, the best insurance against unforeseen circumstances is walking closely with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if He's with you, as we saw last week, what can man do to you? If God is for us, who or what can be against us? David said in the 23rd Psalm, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I've known many a wealthy person when they came to their dying day were terrified, full of anxiety and grief because their wealth had no ability to comfort them. But friends, if you'll trust in the Lord, you'll entrust all your possessions to Him, you'll entrust your life and your time to Him, if you'll entrust your family to Him, you will never be disappointed. I didn't say you'll have a lot. I didn't say you won't have any problems. I say if you trust the Lord, you will never be disappointed. Will anybody say amen to that? Amen. Let's thank Him for that.
Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for your warnings. We need them. And just as surely as if we're not careful, we'll become pharisaical and fake in our piety. There's another danger for Christians, and that is greed. Father, before we know it, we'll be pursuing with the same speed and intensity the things of the world as our lost neighbors are. Father, help us to be different and distinct from the world. Father, help us to value you above all things. Help us to be rich towards God in our time and in our worship, in our service to one another, in the way that we spend our money. Father, I pray you would prosper the men and women of this church who own businesses or who work. Grant them favor with their supervisors, Lord, not so that they can grow wealthy and forget about you, but Lord, so they can provide for the needs of their families and give you glory. And then have their default setting set to yes, that they can help others who are in need. Lord, we believe you're glorified when we hold the things of this world loosely in our hand, that we trust you and not things. And Father, I pray if there's anyone in this room who worships money and possessions, that today would be the day that you would convict them of sin and judgment and righteousness. Draw them, Father, away from that false idol of things to worship the one and only God through Jesus Christ. Father, I pray you do these things for your own glory, for your own namesake, and we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.